Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. Behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached up to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on, on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. When Jacob made a, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Few things are more crippling than being alone or feeling alone. In fact, when I said being alone, something probably came to your mind. Sometimes it's not entirely true, like the sensation that you are alone yet surrounded by people, like a room like this, or the fact that neighbors live all around or above or below you, but in your home you feel a million miles away from them. Maybe you've experienced something that is so unique and specific to you that you're sure that no one understands, and that fact alone is paralyzing to you. You may find yourself as a Christian on a very small and isolated island at school or at work as the one, the only one who understands the truth about God and the gravity of sin and the, the glory of Jesus. Maybe, maybe you've experienced what it's been like to be abandoned or being alone when it comes to the support of family and friends. You may even be someone who generally prefers to be by themselves and not around people, but even still you know that there's a certain kind of alone that is undesirable and difficult. By contrast, I think that we all also agree that there are a few things more relieving or encouraging or strengthening than someone being with you in those situations. For example, when, when you and your spouse have seen and experienced all of the same things in recent years, and you get, you get each other, you get, you understand. Or when a mentor or an older friend tells you the story of how they've been there before, right where you're at. Or when somebody consciously makes the effort to weep with you. Someone being there makes a difference, right? It seems cheap to say you're not alone, but that's because we most often hear that coming from a place that is powerless to convince us. Those words seem like this worn out balloon that is squealing its way into a crash landing. When God says it though, and when we believe it, those words become a hot air balloon billowing up and carrying us through difficulties and into great, greater love for and worship and obedience to God that would be impossible 
to experience if we were alone, abandoned, and told just to, to kind of figure things out. To be clear, what we just read in Genesis 28 isn't just some antidote for loneliness, though I'm sure it can, it can serve and help those who are lonely. Rather, though, it's, it's an amazing display of the grace of God to us that can remove that threat that God is anything but near and present with us as his people. We truly are not alone in very real ways. In fact, the most important ways. In Genesis 28, Jacob finds himself at a crucial time in his life where he is very much alone, not to mention threatened and guilty and uncertain. And it's here where the God of Abraham and Isaac makes an appearance to Jacob, promising blessing, saying, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. I hope what we'll see this morning is those words that ring out from Genesis 28 have not lost any of their intensity. In fact, it's been, they've been put behind a megaphone and amplified to us through Christ. I am with you. The main point is that if, if we grasp that God's constant I am with you is for us and depends on nothing but his own powerful, gracious, and committed word, we will worship him. If we grasp that God's commit, commitment to be present with us came unsolicited in the first place and remains apart from our failures and sin and the brokenness of our world, we will truly and wholeheartedly lay our lives before him in devotion to him and surrender ourselves to the joy of making his name great. Why? He is extremely gracious and we are unbelievably undeserving. If we plumb the depths of his grace and how little we deserve anything good from him, apathy will be replaced with action, half-heartedness with whole life devotion. We will, we will worship this promising God, not just in song, though that is a beautiful way to express our worship. Our worship, in our, we, will, we will end up worshiping in our song, our speech, in our priorities, in our forgiveness, in our work, in our rest, in our parenting, in our anticipation for the future, in our pattern of life, and in our steps of faith. But that will only happen if we grasp that God's constant, I am with you, is for us and depends on nothing but his powerful, gracious, and committed word. We're introduced to Jacob at a very particular point, as I mentioned, and I, I hope that this first few verses show us th that the God of grace makes promises to destitute liars. The God of grace makes promises to destitute liars. Last week we saw the, this conflict among Isaac's family that eventually came to a head. And that's where God mysteriously and masterfully works through deception and dysfunction in order to fulfill his word about Jacob and then to send him off with a blessing from his father. So though Jacob is coming away from that situation with assurance from his father, his brother Esau instead is paving his own route away from God's blessing. Even still, you have to wonder about the questions that arise in Jacob's mind as he's coming from this kind of, I picture it being this sort of firefight, of conflict and deception and manipulation, and now he's coming out of it. He might be thinking, are, are the promises really his? And we might be thinking, did his cunning earn him what he had hoped for, or is he digging this deeper hole for himself? Isaac invited God's blessing on Jacob, but is it legitimate? Was Jacob going to experience the same favor from God as his father and his grandfather? This passage, I think, decisively answers all of those questions. We're told that in verse 10 that Jacob is leaving Beersheba in the south and going towards Haran, also known as Padan Aram, in the north, which is the region outside of the promised land where Abraham came from. And it's also where Isaac, where Isaac's wife, Rebekah, came from. The only difference with the parallels of these two patriarchs finding a wife is that 
in Genesis 24, Abraham was adamant that Isaac not go outside the land, lest he be pulled away from this special place for different reasons. In Jacob's case, though, he, yes, he is searching for a wife, but he is also running for his life, coupled with seeking to honor his mother's arguably manipulative wishes and his father's directive to not take a wife from the idolatrous Canaanites. So he seems to be in a tough position and he seems to have no choice. So as he goes, Beersheba, his home, is in the rear view. Beersheba was the place just a few chapters ago where God, the creator of heaven and earth, and the God of Abraham appeared to Isaac and promised that he would bless Isaac and multiply Isaac just as he had said to his father Abraham. Beersheba symbolized the promise of God continuing to Isaac and Isaac responding in worship and allegiance to him as his God. So now Jacob is leaving that significant place, that symbol of God's promise, and he is now on his own. Think about it. Jacob didn't have the same reference points or experiences as his father Isaac, right? Maybe some of you feel that way. Your parents or others you know seem so sure about God and have had amazing experiences with him. But here you are thinking, I haven't experienced what you've experienced. What am I left with? Some of you know what that fork in the road is like. Do I follow what I've heard in this church or from my family and trust that God will reveal himself to me over time? Or do I abandon that, sort of like Esau, who thought he knew better and paved a different way for himself? So let's see what Jacob winds up choosing, and that may help us. He is on the run. He has deceived his way through the most significant moments of his family, family's life. He's uncertain about his future. He's a wanderer of sorts, who as he finds himself outside of some town, he finds a rock to lay his head on. He goes to sleep with a conception of God that has pa been passed down from his grandfather and his father, but that's about it for now. Is Jacob in any position to get away with his wrongs and not be held accountable for the evil he's done? Is he in any position to expect the king of creation to show himself to him? Is he in a position where he deserves a favor from God or has earned the promise of blessing and protection from God Almighty himself? Is he in that sort of a position? This moment in Jacob's life would have actually been a prime opportunity for God to come and rebuke Jacob and to bring judgment on him for being a conniving fool who took his brother's birthright and his father's blessing by force. But what we find in the next few verses is nothing but a shocking flood of grace. Christopher Wright says in his book, Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament, concerning the story of God in these patriarchs and Jacob and his ancestors, he says, God has an unwavering intention to bless. God has an unwavering intention to bless. Unwavering. I'm reading through Jeremiah right now, and there are some passages in Jeremiah that will cause the hair on your arms to stand up because of God's burning anger kindled against the idolatry of Judah. But there's so many times in Jeremiah where in the same paragraph, and just within a verse or two, where you have God pronouncing his judgment on Judah, chased directly by this refrain, I will bring a remnant of my people back. This is before the judgment has even happened. He is saying, I will preserve, I will bring a remnant of my people back. God has this unwavering intention to bless. He made a promise to bless the whole world through Abraham's seed, and to this day remains resolved to make it happen through Jesus Christ. And the people whom he'd bless are destitute liars, the least deserving. This is where our hearts are, are so often out of step with what we know to be true, because we might know that, that God has this desire to bless and save destitute liars. And yet, 
we often champion our own self-righteousness. We, meaning we, we refuse to be wrong. We, we hate being tagged with anything negative or having our rightness threatened in an argument. Where does that come from? That doesn't come from this story or, or the, the, the pattern of scripture. It comes, it, it comes from our own hearts. It doesn't come from this deep-seated awareness that we should not have gotten anything good from God and that we're actually wretched, poor, pitiable, blind, and naked, as Revelation describes us. We have nothing good to claim as our own apart from the grace of God shed on us like light to a dark room through Jesus Christ. For any of us that feel like the words of Scripture are just here to simply wreck our self-worth, let's be clear and just make a quick distinction. You are the crown of God's creation as a man and a woman. But even as such, we deserve nothing from our holy God. And as sinners, we actually deserve only his just judgment on us. That's the only thing that we are owed. So the fact that he would treat us any differently is astounding. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Any good that we've experienced is a result of God's unwavering intention to bless. We did not deserve the promises of God any more than Jacob did because we were once as bankrupt and guilty as he was. What's about to happen in the story and what has happened to you in Christ has no other explanation for it other than the grace of our great God, the undeserved and unsolicited and unwarranted favor of God to identify and bless destitute liars like you and me and Jacob, the son of Isaac. We have an opportunity each day to further own exactly how unsuspecting we were when God made us alive by his spirit, exactly how undeserving we were and continue to be, even yet as he befriends and protects and leads and loves and assures and emboldens and emboldens us. So don't let that opportunity, even this morning, pass you up. That brings us to what happened to Jacob, where we see that the God of grace has promised his presence, which brings hope. The God of grace whose promised presence brings hope. Verses 13 to 15. Following that theme of Jacob being the recipient of the grace of God, verse 12 starts out with, and he dreamed. What did Jacob do to kick off this meeting with God? Did he woo him down from heaven? Has he done something impressive? All he contributed was his weariness, and that's it. And then he dreamed. But in this dream, he is brought face to face with the God of Abraham and Isaac. Do you remember in Genesis 15 when there's a scene of Abraham and the smoking fire pot and these animals who are cut in half. Do you remember what he was doing? It says that God caused a deep sleep to come over Abraham. Do you remember why? The reason was that God was purposefully sidelining him to prove that his promise was going to be made and executed by him and him alone. I find it interesting that Jacob is in an interesting place. And God is here to prove, like he did to Abraham, that he would keep his word, and he swore it on his own life, a life that as both God and man, he freely laid down and offered as a sacrifice on the cross. The same is happening here with Jacob. God is proving that his promise is not dependent on Jacob. And in the background, we see here, this promise of mine 
to you is not dependent on you. Though Jacob is dreaming, what he sees in this dream is not just a figment of his imagination. He's being given a chance to see very real things, though they're unseen things. He's, he is brought essentially to the, the threshold, the doorstep of heaven. And who is there to meet him except God himself? He sees this ladder or stairway going up from where he is on earth up to heaven. On that staircase are the angels of God traveling up and down between heaven and earth with the Lord standing above it. You see how many times the word behold is in just these couple of verses. Uh, one of the commentaries that I was reading referenced, this is actually written kind of in this choppy grammar. Like, look, a ladder. Look, there's angels on it. Look, there's the Lord himself standing above it. And this is just me, but I, I'd imagine that this dream would put the biggest IMAX movie and the, the best VR experience to shame when it comes to visuals. It is uh, impossible for Jacob to ignore what's happening. This is, this is the encounter where we get the term Jacob's Ladder. It could have also been a stairway, but either way, the vision is a clear demonstration that this is where God's heavenly realm and the seat of his presence meets earth. I don't know how else to put it in modern terms except calling it an access point. For example, we have a, we have a network in this building, and certain access points allow us to connect to the Wi-Fi. Now, don't take that too far and equate God's presence with Wi-Fi, but you, you get the gist, that there are, there are places in which we access, um, access what we need. Now, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, pay close attention to any of these access points, so to speak, where God is present in the special land which, we, which he has promised. This is even a common theme in the Canaanite and ancient Near Eastern world around them, where the gods seem to have this locale in which they ruled, and certain significant places of sacrifice or mountaintops of prominence was where these gods, their dominion and their rule was like most concentrated, or where people would interact with these gods on high places, for example. In the case of the one true God, the, the patriarchs were quick to mark those places because they encountered God there and wanted to maintain the reality that he is a God worthy of worship who came down to meet his people at this location. Eugene Peterson, in his book, Engaging with God, says, since heaven was recognized as God's actual dwelling place, it was not considered that God was limited to special holy places, but the, uh, that he had simply chosen to manifest his character and will for his people at such sites. As the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, he also was linked to certain definite persons as well as certain definite places. I think it's, it's just, in a way, God was, wasn't, was wanting to present himself in concrete ways to the patriarchs and for them to uh, experience him personally. What Jacob, in Jacob's mind, this, this place is utterly unique compared to other places and holy because of what was revealed to him in this dream. What he sees in this dream is the God who created all things, who reigns above all creation, and who disperses his angels to do his will and bidding in the earth. Without invitation or expectation, Jacob is with God. Have you noticed whenever God delivers this word of promise to the patriarchs at key moments, he delivers that message personally. He appeared and spoke to Abraham. He appeared and spoke to Isaac. And now he is appearing and speaking to Jacob. There would be a huge difference between a soldier receiving his medal of honor in the mail with a note from the commander-in-chief, then the commander-in-chief inviting that soldier to the White House in order to give that medal to him personally. Take that honor involved and multiply it. God himself is touching down to meet with Jacob. This movement from heaven to earth is meant to be the Tower of Babel flipped on its head. 
from Genesis 11. Man tried to make it up to God to make a name for himself, scoring nothing but an incomplete construction project. But God, who comes down to man, does so as he pleases, and he does so as an expression of his grace. He is the ruler of all things. He is the supreme Lord and true God, and yet he comes near to his people. As significant as his appearing is, though, what's even more significant is what God says in this vision. Let's read this this time in light of all the chaos and the situations we've come to in the book of Genesis, the fighting, the deceit, the mercy, the long years of waiting, the barrenness, the uncertainty, the sojourning, all of that that's happened in 28 chapters of Genesis. And behold, the Lord stood above that ladder and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, Jacob, I will give to you and to your offspring, Jacob. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you, Jacob, not just Abraham and Isaac, but you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you, Jacob, and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, Jacob, and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised to you. Not that numbers like this match, ma matter a ton, but there's six times that God says I, 13 times that there's you or your. We cannot mistake this for anything except a personal blessing, a personal invitation, a personal interaction. From now on, this God will also be known in his title as the God of Jacob. He has attached himself to this man in order to carry his promise to the world. I find it pretty remarkable that God's promise of land and blessing and offspring is unchanged over the decades of the patriarchs and is repeated with such certainty. There's something slightly different, though, here, and it's spoken to a man who doesn't know if he'll see his father in the promised land again. He has no assurance of that up to this point. He's spoken to a man who is on the run, who doesn't know anything yet about the 20 years of servanthood that he's going to have to endure under his uncle Laban. This is what comes to him. Behold, I am with you and will keep you. In other words, protect you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. Quick clarifier, that doesn't mean that God will leave him later. It's just to emphasize the fact that this is going to happen. It is as sure as it can possibly be. Can you catch the weight that this holds for Jacob? Creator God himself will be with me. God himself will keep me. God himself will bring me back here. How comforting and settling, but also motivating. In a moment, all of Jacob's lingering potential questions are answered. The blessing and his, the promises are his. He will experience the same favor as his father and his grandfather. He will come back to this land, not because of his own guarantee, but because of God's. God will personally see that through. Now, we could easily stop the sermon here and say something like, God was with Jacob, and he's promised to be with you. I think there would be some value in that. Maybe that's enough for you to run with, but there is so much more to this story, especially if we want to answer the question, but how is he with me? Jesus fulfills this very promise in such a way that he takes the word of God proclaimed to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he brings it to Gentiles like you and me and says, here, this is also yours. How is it that Jesus fulfills this promise? 
Jacob's ladder is only referenced one other time in the New Testament, and it's when Jesus calls Nathanael to be his disciple. For reference, Nathanael is the one who says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? When Jesus sees Nathanael, he says, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip, your brother, called you, when, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's odd to me that Jesus doesn't say, you'll see greater things than these, like lepers healed. Blind men will see. You'll even see widows, a widow's son raised from the dead, and a legion of demons cast out of a man, and bread and fish spontaneously multiplied. I'll even walk on water and calm a storm. Those aren't necessarily even the greater things than, that Nathaniel will see. Rather, through all of those miracles, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You fill in the gap. What is Jesus saying? He's hearkening back to this encounter between Jacob and the God of Abraham and Isaac. If Jacob thought that this ladder was an access point where heaven and earth touch and God is near, what does this say to us about Jesus? Jesus himself is the singular touch point between heaven and earth of the divine God over all things, the Lord of creation meeting with this world. Here is the place in which you will encounter the living God face to face. A human like us, yet also the eternal and holy and unchanging God. You want to encounter God? You might feel like, I don't have the same experiences as Jacob or as my parents or other people I know. You'll find God in Jesus Christ. That is where he is to be found and met with. Through all of this, I hope, I hope you see God's own deep resolve to be with and dwell with us. No matter what, he is going to dwell with his people, but not a guilty, unclean people. So rather than getting rid of the people, he dealt with the pollution of sin by cleansing us from our sins through his blood. He wants to dwell with us so adamantly that he would endure the execution of the cross in order to make sure that it would happen. God has been extremely gracious to us in Christ. Like I said, you may be wishing that, that you had this crazy, surreal experience that Jacob had, but let me be first, the first to say that you, without seeing even, have experienced so much better. The king has come, and he has secured the promise for you. Paul says in Galatians 3, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What promise? This promise, that God would bless Jacob and multiply him through Jesus Christ and that the whole world would be exposed to the glory of God through Jacob's seed. The only reason why you and I are in this church is because through Christ, God has bless the nations, and you are living proof of it. You are now an heir with Christ, and you have access to all of the benefits of God's promises. In fact, in Jesus Christ, and only because of him, now we can, we can lift this promise up off the page and now begin to apply it to us. It's, it's cheap to say, God's with Jacob, he's with you. Okay, got it. How is he with us? How can we say, yes, I know that God is with me? Because Jesus, the access point, the mediator between God and man has already come to us. That's how I know that he's with us. 
so we can read it for ourselves now. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. And friends, if, if you don't think that there's a land that we will be brought into, then we are sorely mistaken. We have so much to look forward to. For I will not leave you. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. I'm not gonna leave you high and dry. There is a certainty that until what I've said comes to pass totally and completely, I am not gonna leave you in the meantime. Can you think of a better promise in all of the world than those four words? I am with you. In other words, no, you are most certainly not alone. Not now, not ever. Your journey is not solitary, and you will not take a single step with the, without the accompanying presence of the Lord who commands hosts of angels. From the day you placed your faith in Jesus to save you from his wrath against your sin and give you eternal life, the banner over you changed. It once said, abandoned by friends, forsaken, left behind, forgotten, discarded, rejected, ignored. Now that banner reads, God is with me, and it will never read differently forever. You will remain the same. He is with you when you fail. He is with you when you face difficult decisions. He is with you when you are worn out. He is with you when you battle despair, and when you pray, and when you don't pray, and when you sleep, when you are at a loss for a way forward, when you succeed, when conflicts rage, when the promises of others are broken, when you are inexplicably indifferent to the things of God, when you're trying your hardest to understand scripture, when you're hoping to share the gospel with that friend, when you are freshly motivated to take a big step in following Christ. Remember, this promise is wherever you go, wherever you go. There's not a place where you could go where he is not just as much present as he was in the previous place or a situation where his presence with you is somehow diminished. There is not a place or a situation where he is not fully by your side leading you like a shepherd. Take it from Paul, who at one point was more alone than many of us have been during his defense before a Roman court near the end of his life. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Bruce Waltke says, this promise, I am with you, undergirds all other promises. Of all the things that God could promise you, what is the most valuable thing he could possibly offer us? What would be the most reassuring thing that could give his people boldness and endurance, the most meaningful thing he could possibly give us? It's himself. The supreme triune God has given you and me himself. Church, what more could we need? Honestly, answer that question. What, what more could you possibly need? Are you looking for something that can be better than that? Some relationship or some achievement or some substance, some routine, some level of income that could do better than that? You will not find it. Nothing trumps those words and the full weight of the love behind them. Now, this is where reality I'll have to admit, just makes receiving this promise really difficult. There's far more ways than one to be convinced that God isn't with me. I'll share just four, but you could probably add a few. You might think in a cynical way, God isn't with me. He's nowhere to be found. Not in this situation. Or you might think in a despairing way, God isn't with me. He has no interest in me. 
or this isn't important enough to pull them away from work. Or you might think that God being with you is impossible. Here, in this grief, or in this stupid mess I made, if he's here, then it's certainly not making a difference. You might think that God is only with you occasionally. Well, he's here, but only when I'm like really feeling it. When worship is good, when I'm focused and my soul is quiet before the Lord, or only when I'm in that place or home or with those people that are special to me. Friends, I'm so glad that God Almighty being with us does not depend on how we perceive him. Because if it did, he would be in and out like crazy. It does not depend on how we perceive him or whether we believe him. He's there regardless. He's with you no matter if you're doubting or confused or preoccupied. And that makes it a bit more meaningful when Jesus reiterates some of this promise in Matthew 28. The, the, the one whom angels descend up and down upon, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth, I've been in both, I rule over both, has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, look, pay attention, I am with you always to the end of the age. Who are we to have the king of all things going with us into his mission? Who are we that God would assure us that he is always with us and to the end as we personally and as a church set our hands to maturing and multiplying disciples? I love what Moses says about this in his prayer to God on Mount Sinai as they leave Egypt behind and head towards the promised land. He's pleading with the Lord because God has rested on Mount Sinai. He's appeared to the people of Israel. And in Moses' mind, he's thinking, why would we ever want to leave this place where God has met with us? So he's pleading with the Lord. He says, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and all your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? What makes you and I, what makes this church distinct? What determines our future? What gives us any sort of confidence about where we are in this moment or what tomorrow holds? Is it not that God is with us? parked over here in the parking lot behind the church and was walking around on Smithville. I heard the worship team practicing. You could hear it outside. And with, with this in mind, I was just hoping somebody was out on their porch to say, come in here. God is here. God is with this small group of people. There's nothing that we're doing that's, that's keeping him here. It's the fact that he has promised to be with very particular people in a unique way, those who have trusted in his son, those who are now offspring of Abraham. Is it not that God is with us that makes us distinct? And he is with us only by his sheer grace. If we were to, to peer into our future like this, this long stretch of interstate, for each day and year and decade, we find this mile marker of God's presence. He's here, and he's here, and he's here without a single one of those being missing. It's this promised presence that brings hope. It dispels our anxious worries, and it gives us fresh resolve to move ahead as it did for Jacob. Finally and lastly, the God of grace turns liars into worshipers. Understandably, Jacob is incredibly overwhelmed to the point of being afraid after he sees this vision. He wastes no time responding as he takes the rock on which his head rested and he sets it up, pointing it upward as a memorial. 
This was a, a typical symbol to not only mark places, but also to mark places of worship, causing passersby to look at this vertical stone that didn't just find itself that way and say, someone put this here on purpose. In the absence of, of a, an animal sacrifice on an altar, Jacob worships God by anointing this stone with oil. And he gives that place the name Bethel, even though the Canaanite town we found, find out is named Luz. He renames it because of the significance of what happens. Bethel is made of two words, meaning house of God. And this site in Bethel, you can just kind of search for that place in scripture. It becomes a significant place of worship for Israel in the future because of this historic moment. The vow that Jacob makes might sound at first kind of like this bargain, but it's actually a solemn commitment to the one whom he is now also in covenant with, along with his father and his grandfather. He says, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, again, he's, he's not bargaining. He's reiterating what God has already promised to do. I will be with you. I'm going to keep you. If God's going to do that so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord, Yahweh, shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth back to you. Jacob, from this point forward, though imperfect, is a changed man. Nothing has changed about his fortunes or his situation. For example, Esau is still furious with Jacob. Esau is not just not furious because Jacob has had this encounter with God. But what has changed is that he has received inconceivably great promises from God. Worship for Jacob was the only fitting response. It would have been insane for Jacob to have simply just got up, got ready for his journey, and gone on his way. And the same goes for us. Do the promises of our exceedingly gracious God incite you to worship him? First of all, they can. The promises of God can bring you to worship him. Here's what I mean when I say worship. I mean the, the all-encompassing act of exalting God in our lives through revering God and giving honor and praise to God, through expressing our continual dependence on him, through obeying his word and what Jesus has commanded, through being wholly dedicated to God and to God's people, through offering our lives continually as this sacrifice to Jesus the very one who has given us a share in his kingdom by paying for our sins and welcoming us into communion with God, our maker. Whole life worship given to God. I started a, a small fire this week to burn up some limbs that had fallen throughout the winter in our yard. Everything wasn't totally dry and it just took a long time for it to, to get going. It got the job done of taking care of all these limbs, but it was pretty underwhelming as far as fires go. Um, the disappointment reminded me of the fire we made on my 15th birthday. The fire consisted of three or four wooden box springs, you know, like from a bed, so that the structure itself was about seven feet tall. And when, we, when it was all said and done, there was about this 20-foot tall flame coming from this bonfire. In fact, my friends who were, they were hoping to cook hot dogs that night, and they're using their jackets as a shield to try to get close enough to the fire uh, because they couldn't get more than a few paces away. No, no hot dogs for them, unfortunately. I trust that you know the difference when you are captivated by Christ and his glory and other times when you're hardly interested. Our devotion to our king will depend on whether we've taken him at his word and the stunning promises he's made to us. If the promise of God's, the promises of God, including this one that we've shared this morning and we've read about this morning, do not incite us to worship him, let's get familiar again with how undeserving we are to receive that promise. Let's reacquaint ourselves with how glorious he is who has made these promises to us. And let's begin right now to plead with him to help us by his spirit to believe those promises when they seem impossible. 
The promises of God, when considered in faith, are never meant to be empty words that leave us unmoved and indifferent and unfazed. They should ignite worship in us, not, not just worshipful feelings, though, though we love those and they are in part essential to our relationship with God. But they should, the promises of God should ignite worship in us that is so much more than that. In response to his, I am with you, we should focus our deep loves and desires and become intent upon our Savior. A simple nod of agreement falls woefully short of an appropriate response, just as Jacob going on his merry way would have been a gross oversight. If that's the case for you and for me, I'd say we need to take a closer look because as Second Peter says, we may have forgotten that we have been cleansed from our former sins. In other words, we may have lost the amazement at God's grace towards us that will fuel our whole life worship like lots of dry kindling for a fire. Sometimes we may be put back on our heels and caused to be silent or to sing with joy in response to God's grace. But at other times, the grace of God through his promises also gets behind us and pushes us to live lives that are about one thing, about the glory of God by following Jesus Christ. Every facet of our worship flows from the reality that you and I, of all people, have received great and precious promises from the God who has fulfilled them in Christ and brought them to us personally by his Holy Spirit. We face an assault of unbelief that would convince us that we are alone, that whatever we do as a church will fail, that whatever difficulty we're under will indeed crush us, that the future is hopeless, that you will not make it to the end. Friends, against that incessant daily assault comes the power of God's word, full of meaning when spoken by our covenant-keeping and risen Lord. I am with you always and forever.